Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Hey, this episode might be too disturbing even for a true crime fan. It involves the recent traumatic death of a nine-year-old child, and the perpetrator is also a child. We're dads, and this one's really difficult for us, but we hope that bringing awareness to the situation will somehow, someday, bring some understanding and perhaps prevent a tragedy. If it's going to be too much for you, we get it, and it's totally okay if you go ahead and skip this episode. Late one night in January of 2023, a 12-year-old girl stabbed her little brother Xander to death in a Tulsa, Oklahoma apartment while their mother was asleep upstairs. Xander's screams initially led the mother to think he was having a nightmare, and as any parent would do, her first thought was to wake him up. That's when she saw the blood, and Xander told her, she stabbed me. April, the mother, asked who, because the notion that her 12-year-old daughter had done this was unimaginable. Let's get to know Xander a little bit. He was nine years old. Family friends Doug and Jenny Anthematten describe him in a post on a GoFundMe page that they set up for April as a sweet boy with the biggest smile. They say he didn't have to be asked twice to do something, that he always wanted to make his mom proud. He liked riding his bike, Fortnite, running errands with his mom, and hanging with his best friend. He enjoyed going on family trips and spending time with his father and grandmother. According to the post, his favorite places were Sky Zone, Incredible Pizza, and the Children's Museum. I've never heard of an incredible pizza, but it sounds like a place I'd love to see. It sounds incredible. And his favorite foods were cheese pizza, tacos, and chocolate ice cream. I mean, I'm with this kid. Yeah, I don't know about if those were all at the same time, but... Hey, if you're having all three at the same time, you're living your best life. Yeah, at nine, probably. At nine, at my <clears throat> age, I'm still about that. The Anthematons had set up this GoFundMe to help April and her three-year-old son be able to move to another home, pay some legal fees, car repair, and living expenses until she's able to return to work full-time. I can't even imagine what it's like to go back to that apartment where this horrible tragedy took place, and I really hope her and her little one have been able to get into another place. For sure. So body camera footage from the scene the night of the stabbing shows this 12-year-old girl coming out of the apartment into police custody repeatedly saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, while crying hysterically. In front of the building, police ask her where the knife was. She said that she threw the knife out of her bedroom window, and when the police officer is trying to figure out where that would be, she offers to take him to the knife that's on the ground. As fire and EMS personnel treat Xander's injuries and transport him to the hospital, the girl continues to say she's sorry, and she doesn't know what happened or why she did it. Inside a police car, video captures her praying in a soft whisper, a prayer of apology, and asking God to help her. Now, you've been to, you've been to some pretty nasty stuff before in your life, in a professional capacity, to be clear. From the standpoint of the first responders who are dealing with this, you know, you got any time that you're dealing with a child, there's this heightened level of, I don't even know how to describe it. I spent a very small period of time in the world that you spent a lot of time in. And I know that anytime there was um, an emergency call that involved children, it just seemed to take on another level of urgency, of seriousness and everything. So I just wonder, what do you think about for those people who responded to that? Just from that perspective, you got this nine-year-old who's been stabbed and it wouldn't be like they just go in and deal with that and not be at least aware that we're not just responding to some criminal act that took place in a seedy downtown area where, yeah, we want to help somebody. But here we're in this home where there's a child who's been severely injured. And the person who did it is apparently his sister that's only three years older than him. What do you think in that instance it's like to be those first responders? I think it's a horrible situation for them to be in. 
in the beginning, there may have been some of them or one of them that knew that the little girl had done it, but their focus as paramedics and EMTs and the firefighters that were there helping to try and resuscitate this child, their focus is to go find what's wrong with this kid and try and fix it or reverse it or stabilize it. So they're going as soon as possible, getting their hands on this little boy and trying to maintain his life. So the why at that point, it's not part of the medical situation. It's just the what, and then what do we need to do to fix this and keep this kid alive? Mm -hmm. And yeah, when it comes to kids, paramedics and EMTs, anytime there's a life-threatening injury, they're doing what they need to do. But for some reason, when kids are involved, it just seems like it's much higher stakes. And especially any of the responders that have children of their own, it's really tough when you see a a really badly injured or a really sick kid, and you look and you can associate them with your own kid, puts it in a different headspace. And you know, you have to separate the emotion in the moment there. You have to put that to the back because you have to, you have to let your training and experience do what it does. It's not that you're cold or distant, but to some degree, you have to remove that so that you can focus on the clinical interventions that need to happen to give this kid the best chance in the world of survival. And then usually it is after, after you're done, after you deliver that kid to the hospital and you walk away, really once you turn them over to the staff, you start to realize and let some emotion come in. And everybody handles every situation a little bit differently. For some people, it, it can be really devastating. And for others, maybe they're able to take it a little better. And that can vary from one incident to another. So it's not that it's uh, some people are more emotional than others. It's that someone may go to a bunch of scenes like this and seem to be okay. But then all of a sudden, for a reason they don't understand, a certain scene will hit them a bad way. The police in this situation, they were in a hell of a strange space, too, because you go and you've got the victim and the bad guy. But in this case, the victim is a nine-year-old child and the bad guy is a 12-year-old girl mm -hmm. and one who is emotional and crying and apologetic and fully remorseful and very confused. Yeah, I mean, you watch the video and she almost seems like no different than if she had just been somebody who was there and had witnessed this and has this just that kind of an emotional response like oh my gosh i can't believe this just happened this is so upsetting it's crazy and yeah. like you said so you know, very remorseful and uh, and she says pretty much that too she doesn't understand what happened she knows she did it she hmm. knows it was wrong but she doesn't understand why she did it. She even tells her mom early on while the body cam is running that she doesn't know what happened. She's sorry. This was some kind of demonic shit. Yeah, and yeah she, it's she rough. makes reference to like the fact that she's ruined her life. And, you know, and one thing that really stuck out to me is when I think there's a point in the footage where the mom actually says something to her daughter, like something to the effect of he's going to be mad at you or it's going to be hard for him to forgive you for this or something like that. When I heard that, I just thought how, you know, in that moment, mom, in her mind, she hasn't even, and I, who would, she hasn't gotten to that point of ultimately what's going to happen to her son, that he's not going to have a chance to forgive her. Oh, I just thought that was really heavy. They all know it's very serious, but they did not know at that point that he would not survive. The little girl asked one of the officers while she was in the police car about her brother's condition, and she went on to speculate that she'd be in jail for the rest of her life, that she doesn't think her brother will ever forgive give her and that her mom and her brother won't let her live there anymore because of what she's done, because they won't be able to trust her. She describes what she's done as highly illegal. So she's 
fully aware that this is a terrible thing, but at the same time, this is not some cold, maniacal killer. She seems to be genuinely as perplexed as everyone else as to why she'd do this. Yeah, it's a bizarre video. I mean, just taking it in, it's the kind of thing that, you know, it's a little bit difficult to watch, honestly. If you're listening and you think, well, oh, I'm going to go watch this whole 25-minute video, just know that it's a tough one to sit through. You know, I've been through my share of horrible scenes, and that really was tough to watch. Yeah, I want to say, too, Tulsa. So I've been to Tulsa a handful of times, and it's different, but I really like it there. It's a great place. The people have always been welcoming and friendly, and I've just really enjoyed time there. I've met all kinds of folks from different areas uh, in that general area. I looked up on the map where this took place, uh, and I haven't been to that apartment complex, but I've driven by it probably two or three times. And just, you know, in interactions and, and stuff out there, it's just a, a neat city with good folks. And so the community there, I'm sure this is, uh, I just can't imagine having something like that happen to be a part of a community where something like this takes place. His mother somewhere that night makes reference to feeling like she's losing two children in the same incident. And man, that's horrible. It's just tough. So within minutes of this happening, the who, the what, when, where, and how, they're all pretty clear. It's very clear who did it, what they did, when they did it, where they did it, how they did it. So what is there to talk about in this case? The question that remained was why. And as human beings, the why is really important to us because we want to be able to stop something like this from happening in our families. And we believe that if we know what caused this to happen, we can avoid that moment or that decision if it ever arises in our world. It's logical and it's born out of basic human instinct for survival and the protection of our children. We want to know why. And back to what you asked about first responders, that's something that first responders, police, fire, and EMS, and dispatchers as well, all struggle with sometimes is just the why. We see the horrible things that human beings do to one another, and we want to believe there's a reason to make it make sense in our heads. Yeah, there's a reason I have a criminal profiling textbook on my bookshelf. Right. So since this incident, the girl was taken to the Family Center for Juvenile Justice, and that's where she's been since this incident. Recently, the mother said that the girl still has no idea why she did it, but that she's heartbroken, and she feels like it wasn't her that did it. That sort of lines up with what she said that night. I mean, it's mm -hmm. the same thing, and even the way she behaved that night, like you said, it was like she was a witness, not a participant, even though she knows she's the one that did it. Yeah. When did this take place? This was January 5th or 6th of 2023. So looking into the why, and spoiler alert, at the end of this episode, we're not going to be able to give you a definitive why. That's far beyond our qualifications to do, but we're going to explore what some folks have brought to the table. Yeah, and I think it's important as we enter this conversation to just make it clear that we don't have the answer. And as we talk through some theories and ideas and maybe even speculate on some things, there's no point in this that we're trying to place blame on somebody or to make it out to seem like this person should have done better or anything like that, as much as it is to just really think through some of these issues like you said, in an effort to think about how could we help in the future to avoid a situation like this. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing here that I've seen that's an obvious warning sign that could have changed the course of this event. Yeah, we're not looking to condemn anybody is what I'm saying. Maybe somehow we can learn from it and this young boy's death can somehow maybe prevent something in the future. Not that is even obvious right now of how or what it would contribute, but... It's a conversation worth having. Right. Yeah. And hopefully people much smarter and more educated than us will be able to extend the conversation into something that's more useful for parents everywhere. 
So the children's mother, again, her name is April, she believes the incident was caused by medication. She explained that the girl had been on medication. We believe it was for ADHD, that's been mentioned a few times, because she had been having trouble concentrating in school. And at some point, the girl switched to homeschool and she wanted to try going off the medication. And her mother agreed and said, hey, we'll give it a shot. So she stopped the medication. But about a year, year and a half later, the girl went back to school and the doctor recommended putting her back on this medication because her grades were starting to slip. So they went back on the medication and the mother says that within a month of her being back on the medication, the girl started cutting her arms and she had expressed to the mom that she was becoming irritable and angry for no reason while she was taking it. So the mother, after talking to the daughter of the school and the child's doctor discontinued the medication. Now, just to be clear, when you say like cutting your arms, I assume you mean like self-harm? Yes, but the mother is um, points out very clearly that what she means by that is that there were two instances of the girl cutting her arms. The first one, which led to the decision to stop the medication, and the second one that occurred the night before the stabbing. So, it, it sounds like she wants it to be clear that this wasn't something that was going on repeatedly for months and months. This was... It just really started, it sounds like. That's the impression I got from it. The mother says that despite the fact that she was taken off the medication, she believes it was too late and said stuff like this can happen months or even years after stopping a medication. I don't know the clinical accuracy of that, and I'm not going to speculate. Newsflash, we are not doctors. Not doctors. Doctors, not pharmacists, not toxicologists, not pillologists, none of that. Not even a street pharmacist. But I absolutely think it's important to share what the mother, who obviously knows this child better than anybody, and who's also been in regular contact with the folks at the Family Center for Juvenile Justice who've been working with this girl, I think it's really important to include what she believes and what she's found. Alternatively, some mental health professionals who've been interviewed about this incident say that this kind of adverse effect from a medication that someone's no longer taking seems unlikely. And full disclosure, these professionals point out that they have not examined the girl, nor are they privy to the facts that haven't been made public, so they're commenting in general on these ideas, not diagnosing. They have not examined that these are not the child's healthcare providers. These are, I guess, experts that various different news outlets and whatnot have gotten opinions from. They're kind of speaking in generalities or in the realm of, okay, this is the kind of thing that could occur in a case involving similar people, similar medications, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. There's a 2019 research paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine that found that among adolescents and young adults with ADHD who were receiving prescription stimulants, new-onset psychosis occurred in approximately 1 in 660 patients. Now, I emphasize the word stimulants there because not all ADHD meds are stimulants. There are ADHD meds that are not. Amphetamine variety? Right. There was a case back in 1999 in Bismarck, North Dakota, where a man killed his five-week-old daughter oh. with a shotgun and then oh shot himself gosh. in the abdomen. He um, shot himself in the abdomen with a shotgun. Just another oh. devastating story, but he recovered and he was charged with murder. Yeah. He said that within days after he started taking an ADHD med Adderall, he started hearing voices, and he believed that God was telling him to leave his body and bring his daughter with him to save the world, wow. according to his lawyer. 
and this is according to an Associated Press news article. Psychiatrists testified before a judge that the shootings happened solely because of a psychotic state caused by the prescription drug. And the judge agreed, ruling that Ellis lacked the capacity to understand what he was doing. Wow. And I'm not at all trying to say that it's the exact same situation here. I just want to point out that there have been... It's not like the first time somebody said this, and it sounds like you just cited a court case where a judge yeah. found that that was a real thing. This isn't some just crazy off-the-walls theory that a talking head on a news channel had. That incident occurred when this gentleman was taking the medication, and this incident occurred after this girl stopped taking the medication. And again, this was a case of Adderall, and I do recall in reading about this case that there was a, a representative for the drug company that had said in all of the people taking Adderall that there were like 10 instances where there was aggression, and this was one of the 10, and none of those were nearly this horrible or violent. So I do not want to try and say all ADHD meds are bad, don't take them. I don't know. That's something for parents and doctors to decide together, whether the benefits and the risks and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Nothing in this episode is to be considered as medical advice. Right. So psychosis is a word that has come up a couple times here. And we're not talking about the girl's a nutcase or anything like that. First of all, we're not qualified to make that diagnosis, but there can be episodes of psychosis that are isolated. There's something, I believe it's brief psychotic episode. Its hallmark is that it's very short-lived, mm. something like less than a month, and there may or may not ever be another episode of such a thing. Psychosis is a collection of symptoms where there's been some kind of disconnect with reality. So like mm. the way a person thinks or perceives things gets messed up and they might have difficulty recognizing what's real and what's not real. And that can be a symptom. Psychosis can be a symptom of a mental illness like bipolar disorder or severe depression. But people who have not been diagnosed with any of those things can have an episode of psychosis, can display that symptom. I'm reading here, I'm looking at the National Institute for Mental Health. They believe it comes from a complex combination of genetics, differences in brain development, and exposure to stress and trauma. It may be a symptom of mental illness, as we said, but it may not. Other possible causes they list are sleep deprivation, certain prescription medications, uh, or the misuse of alcohol or drugs. I'm just going down that route because I'm listening to the experts who've been weighing in on some general thoughts about situations like this. Psychosis seems to be like the term being applied the question is, what caused the psychosis? And it sounds like, from what you said, there's a whole smorgasbord or palette to choose from of things that could right. cause it. Now, well, the mother is adamant that the child does not have any mental health issues, mm -hmm. that she's been a good kid, she was a good kid up until this happened, and that she's been a good kid while she's been in the Family Justice Center. But let me ask you this. One of the things you mentioned was, I heard, like, trauma in there. Is there any evidence that there's been anything in her background that you've seen in research in this case that would indicate there's any of that going on? I'm throwing that out. I don't know if you want to go there or not, or how much you want to go there. I haven't seen anything that's been absolutely convincing to me. There was an article that I'm disappointed in the way it tried to sensationalize things here. The media sensationalizing tragedy? I don't believe it. Yeah, it talked about the history of this girl's biological father. I'm not even going to repeat some of the irrelevant nonsense that was in there, but he's been in prison most, if not her entire life, her mother took her to the prison a couple times to see him when she was very young, but doesn't sound like they've had any recent contact. And then Xander's father uh, has apparently had a little bit of trouble with the law and done some 
strange things. Let me ask you this, because I know we don't want to get too much into the woods. In any of that reporting in that article, were there any allegations or convictions or anything of any type of abuse toward her? No, there's been no reports that I'm aware of of any kind of abuse or neglect toward this girl. She was asked by one of the police officers the night of the stabbing about um, who takes care of her and her little brothers when mom's at work. And she said that she does. She babysits. So there have been some people now that say, oh, that's too young and she shouldn't have been in charge and it's too much stress and whatever. And, and remind me, she's how old again? Twelve. I don't know. Nowadays, that probably is against five laws, but I feel like older siblings have to take care of younger siblings for a long time, and it's not all that odd to me. Our grandparents' generation, you were 12, you were probably managing the farm and taking care of three kids. Very uh, subjective. Yeah. Yeah, different maturity levels and responsibility among... That's a year mileage may vary situation. There are states, you mentioned breaking laws, there are some states that have minimum age requirements for leaving a kid home alone. So according to Oklahoma Human Services, website. In Oklahoma, there's no law or policy for how old a child has to be in order to be left alone. But that website, which this is an official state website, they give some recommended guidelines for parents. And the first one, I'll just read the first one. There's a few other, but the first one says, infants and children under six years of age should never be left alone without adult supervision. So there you go. The girl here is 12. She's double the age. I personally can't imagine leaving a seven-year-old home alone. But again, different kids are different. 12 would be middle school, right? 12 would be about sixth grade, wouldn't it? Yeah. So this says middle school children may care for one or two younger children if there is constant access to a responsible adult. And middle school children who demonstrate the ability to care for themselves without help may be left alone for up to four hours during the day and evening. There was nothing in that body cam footage or the video from within the police car or even when they were at the hospital. There's nothing in that where the police seemed to make a big deal about that the night of the incident. Of course, it wasn't relevant to that particular night. They weren't home alone. Mom was upstairs asleep. It doesn't seem like a big deal to me, but and it doesn't seem like they made a big deal out of it. Yeah, and I almost wonder, just thinking about from an investigative standpoint, if you're an officer, this kind of thing goes down. You might ask questions like that. Who takes care of your mom's not around to see, is there somebody else, is there another adult figure in this girl's world who maybe has done something to her or has had some sort of an impact that might be helpful in the investigation and just understanding why this happened? Absolutely. I think everybody's looking for answers. One interesting point is that when the police asked her that question, it almost felt to me like they were more just making conversation and trying to keep her mind occupied than actually investigating. But I guess, you know, a good investigator will certainly make it seem like they're just having a chit chat when they're really trying to get information. I think there were three different police officers we saw watching this girl at the scene there before she was then handed over to a detective at the family center. I felt like they were all just really good with her and what you would want a police officer to do as a human being. It's fascinating to me how they're able to switch gears and be in the right role mm. when the bad guy is a little kid. And I think what pulled at my heartstrings early on in that video, the police officer, he handcuffs the girl and takes her off to the side away from the front door and he tells her to sit on the ground crisscross applesauce. That is just like a stunning contradiction. We're used to seeing police telling people, you know, on your belly with your hands out or you're going to sit on that curb. And, you know, they're pretty stern and forceful with suspects. But here you're telling a murder suspect 
Okay, we're going to sit down crisscross applesauce. Probably not something that police officer thought he was ever going to have to say, right? No, but bless his heart for just Mm. being a decent human being. Yeah, for sure. That was definitely one of the silver linings of watching that video was to see how it was handled. The mother at some point had explained, I guess, to some media that she had been a drug user back in the day. And perhaps she said this kind of in relation to the girl's father and then Xander's father and some of the struggles that they've had with the first, I believe, with drugs and the second, it sounds more so with alcohol. But that the moment she found out she was pregnant with this 12-year-old girl, she stopped. She was done. And I have no reason to doubt that story. And Bless her heart, that couldn't have been easy. And thank the good Lord for giving her that reason to get sober and stay sober. Yeah, for sure. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. The media wants to spice it up, but I also think that we out here in the world, we don't want to think that a normal family like ours could have this happen because then that means that we're susceptible to it too. So it seems like the rest of us have a vested interest in finding some major flaws to be able to say, oh, that's not going to happen to me because I didn't have this going on. And I think that's pretty naive to to try and do that. Yeah, we want to think we're better. I'm better than and that uh, that would never happen to my family or in my house. Yeah, and I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's a matter of just being an, an elitist or being snobby. I think we feel like we we need to have that distinction so that we feel safe that it's not going to happen in our home. Crimes don't happen in this neighborhood. We don't have to worry about that because we've chosen to live here and not where this. Yeah. Self protection. Yeah. The mother, I believe, she had written somewhere. She had commented somewhere that she thought it should be illegal and inappropriate for that body cam footage to be out there. And so Mm. illegal, I have no idea. Inappropriate, I could certainly understand. That was the probably the most horrible day of her life, her daughter's life. And yes, that footage sure enough is out there. Yeah, I can't blame her for that. I don't want to get into a policy debate on whether it should or shouldn't be. But just from a human standpoint, I certainly can understand why. Just because something is legal doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do or should be done. Sure. And I learned of the mother's stance on this after having seen this video and looked at a lot of other things. And since this video is out there, I feel like it's pretty important for parents to be aware. I think we should be having the conversation. Yeah, for sure. It doesn't hurt to be talking about this in a way that's healthy and helpful, but also to be respectful of this family and what they've been through. There's a lot of disrespect out there. There are a lot of commenters who are saying this kid knew what she was doing, threw the book at her, lock her up, never let her out, which I think is pretty rough considering she's 12. Her mm-hmm. brain hasn't is nowhere near fully developed yet. Jury judge and executioners out there on the on the social media platforms, huh? Right. And how could we say something like that when we do not have access to any of the evaluations or assessments that have been conducted as a child. We don't know the rest of the evidence that might explain why. There's a lot of unknowns there. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, murder is serious. Murder is a big deal. There's a reason it's treated categorically different than all other crimes because it is categorically different. You're ending another human being's life permanently. You can't undo that. Let's back up here because this was clearly a homicide. This is one person taking the life of another. This is a homicide. Mm -hmm. There's no two ways about it. But not all homicides are murders. Sure. Yeah. And my understanding is that there has to be some kind of ne'er-do-well in your heart. I don't know that Mm -hmm. it's necessarily intent. You're touching on something that's really important, right? What we would call the mens rea, your mental state, that has a huge impact on which common law level of murder that would apply. This varies state to state, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. 
I think what people tend to typically think of, first degree murder, that's the one that's top of the mind. For that, you got to have premeditation and intent. Those are the two things. So I have to intend to commit a murder. I have to intend to homicide you. And then in addition to that, it has to be premeditated. Now that, you could spend an entire semester understanding what premeditation means. A lot of people think it requires some sort of map and weeks of planning and scheming and internet searches and whatever else. And then that can be premeditation. It certainly would be. But in addition to that, it's enough that if you walked into the house today and I looked at you and I thought, you know what, I'm going to shoot this guy and I pull out a gun and I shoot you. That's premeditated. All I need is enough time to really form that plan of I want to do this and I'm going to do this. And that can happen in a very short period of time. I'm glad that's not how today started. That is not how today started. Yeah, good good for all of us. So first degree, you need premeditation, you need intent. Second degree, you're losing some of that. Well, what does that mean? It means, you know, you intended to commit a murder, but it wasn't premeditated. So the typical thing you think of with this would be something more like heat of the moment. So you come home from a hard day's work and something that you're not expecting to see that might get you a bit emotionally charged is happening to somebody you care about. I don't know. Say your wife and the mailman are, <laughs> something. are, are having an interlude. Yeah, there's something inappropriate in nature going on there, something you're not expecting. And as soon as you see it, you just, you got your tool belt on and you pull the hammer out and you whack the mailman. Okay, so you would have an argument that could be second degree murder because you're not premeditating. Now, Again, we get into that nuance, though. You stand there for five minutes with the hammer in your hand and think about it and then do it. Then maybe you're talking murder one. You're probably talking murder one. That's what lawyers are argue back and forth, the, the finer points there. Exactly. And then you get into these other murders, voluntary homicide, involuntary homicide, manslaughter, felony murder. There's a lot of ways to categorize homicide. Felony murder is one of those that, I guess, maybe it's the only, you tell me, classification of murder that does not require intent. Because in that case, you're going to rob a liquor store, but you have no plan to harm anybody. And you rob the liquor store, and that's a felony. And you're someone else there with you, your partner, kills the liquor store owner by virtue of you being there for the burglary, that can be considered felony murder. Is that what I'm understanding? You're correct. That is how generally how felony murder works. You're incorrect. And that's the only one where you don't need intent. Involuntary manslaughter also does not require intent to murder or to commit homicide. It requires essentially a criminal negligence or recklessness that then results in a homicide. So those two are the ones where you don't need any intent. Gotcha. Um, but felony, and is that still considered murder? It would be homicide. Some people would refer to it as murder, but to your point where you're actually caring about what the words mean, I think it's involuntary manslaughter. So I would say it would be a homicide, but not a murder because you didn't intend to murder anybody. So a good example of that would be, let's say that I am drunk out of my mind and I get behind the wheel of a car and I go driving down the street and I mow down some pedestrians. There's probably a good argument that I have committed involuntary manslaughter. I had no intent to kill anybody. But when I got behind the wheel of the car, a 4,000-pound machine, and I was drunk out of my mind, that there, and the way it works is it's like you had this criminal intent to commit an act that was so reckless or dangerous that it's reasonably foreseeable that you would have a great bodily injury or death could result from those actions. Right. The really bad things could happen. Right. So it doesn't matter that you didn't intend to commit a murder because you had this criminal negligence or this criminal recklessness, that kind of 
gets you then to this involuntary manslaughter. Sure. Yeah. But the felony murder, you're right. The way that works, kind of the expression goes in for a penny, in for a pound. It doesn't matter. And that can happen in a group setting too. If you're just the getaway driver for the robbery and another guy on the robbery crew shoots and kills somebody, then you're in for murder with the whole crew because that one person in your crew did it while you're committing the felony. Yeah, you signed on for the robbery. You should have known that bad things can happen. Yeah, robberies go wrong all the time. But yeah, there's lots of levels to it. There's nuance. Different states have different requirements, definitions under the statutes, the laws. So you can see that go all different ways. Would we expect from a legal standpoint, this 12-year-old girl, she may have turned 13 by now, but I understand in Oklahoma, the youngest you can be and be charged as an adult would be 13. So she's... Correct. And that's only if the charge is murder. 13, 14, if it's murder in the first degree, you can be charged as an adult. If it's any other crime, you actually have to be, I want to say it's 15 to be bound up or whatever as an adult. But yeah, so the fact that she allegedly committed this crime or is suspected of doing this, if the evidence were to pan out that way. My understanding from looking at the laws in Oklahoma, she cannot under any circumstances be tried as an adult, that this will all proceed in the juvenile justice system in Oklahoma, which is its own animal. You know, you think about it, kids in court, that's not a good thing ever. One of the panelists in some interview somewhere was explaining that in the juvenile justice system, they're wholeheartedly focused on like rehabilitation. Yeah. Like, Generally, yeah, that's the goal because You've got a kid, literally a child. And you think, too, and this is not, I want to be clear, I'm not trying to put this on mom in this case, and that's not my intention with what I'm about to say. But typically, if you have a young child like this who has gotten into whatever kind of trouble, legal trouble, kids are often a product of whatever whether it's in the environment, whether it's their surroundings at home, whether it's in this case, there's some talk that maybe it's medication. Children are so malleable that it's not like an adult where you've fully formed your opinions, you've fully formed who you are, and now you're out on your own and you're setting your own course. You're very much like at the mercy of the school you go to and the place where you live and the environment around you. And, the you know, even to this medication point, I think you and I were talking earlier, as a child, she doesn't even really have a choice about taking medication now. Maybe her mom talked to her about it and they made it together and that would be great. I hope they did. But hypothetically, if a mom wanted their child to take the medication and a doctor's prescribed it, then what is a kid going to do? The mom says in this situation that the first time she took her off the medication, it was based on the girl wanting to try going without it. It mm -hmm. sounds like they're working together. They're right. Which and is great. I'm really, that's awesome. The second time coming off the medication, it was the girl coming to her saying this is a problem and the mom consulting with the school and the doctor and to me sounds like the mom's doing everything right there yeah that's great and in that case that's why i just i want to point it out that it's generally as a child there's all these things going on that you really don't have control over in this case it sounds like that's not what happened the way i'm understanding what you're saying is that in the case of juveniles not this juvenile specifically, but just in general, in juvenile court, the idea is to look at what foundations and structures and resources can we put in place around this child, whether it be techniques for the parents or whether it be a different school or resources or whatever. Yeah, counseling, therapy, medication. What is it? There's something that's not right. Maybe it's hot meals in some instances, not this one, but yeah. What be... can we wrap around this mm -hmm. family and child to give them the best chance for success? Is that 
that kind of what I'm getting, the point of juvenile justice generally? Yeah, that really is it. It's really about equipping and caring for. And I mean, that's the goal. Now, can I speak for juvenile justice across the country? No. And is it better in some areas than others? I'm sure. The reality is the goal might be one thing and the practical effect is another. And I can't speak to the practical effect of the juvenile justice system in Oklahoma or really anywhere else. That's what they're trying to do. And I'm sure some folks feel that they do a good job at it and other folks probably feel that they don't do enough or that they don't do it the right way. Look at the reality for this girl who's 12. She might have turned 13 now. And suppose they, they set her free tomorrow. I feel like that emotion that we saw in the body cam footage was genuine. The mother says that she remains remorseful. And taking all those things at face value, and we have no reason not to, that child is going to be in a prison for the rest of her life in her own mind. She's always going to know that she took her little brother's life. I don't know that any punishment would be any worse than that. Yeah, you start to think about and put yourself in the shoes of anybody in this situation. And it's horrible because as a parent, you've got this daughter that you love and you care about and you want to see thrive and grow and be successful and all the things you hope for your kids. Going into mom's shoes for a second, just like the daughter's going to know as the mom, you know, you've been through this traumatic event. It's going to take a lot to really process and to try to come to a place where that's not what you think about and that that's not really something that impacts you any more than it absolutely has to. I can't imagine it's going to be very difficult. And that's where I think the people who are quick to just sort of throw their two cents out on social media, put yourself in somebody else's shoes for a second before you go offering your opinion. And there's a lot of situations I'm cool with calling it what it is. But this situation, when you're dealing with these two children and this mother that is, it sounds like she's not only doing the best she can, but she's doing a pretty good dang on job. And she says, and her friends and family say that, you know, she's done a fantastic job of taking care of these three kids. And even though maybe she has not been so great at picking romantic partners, that she's done a fantastic job of shielding these kids from some of those from that and not having any effects from it. I don't know. At this point, there's absolutely nothing to suggest that there has been some kind of trauma or that the mother has done a thing wrong. And so if something like that comes out and it does, okay, I'll stand corrected. But for now, why can we not give this mother the benefit of the doubt that she's being the best mom possible? Part of, I think, examining something like this that's happened a little bit more recently and just trying to shine light on some of these issues so that people are thinking about it. And, you know, hopefully someday this mom is in a position where she's able to talk about this in a way that really can help other folks to whatever it is as they figure out maybe why this happened or they get closer to figuring out why this happened. I truly hope they come up with a pretty concrete why and that is able to be shared and if it is that the medication can have a lasting effect after, well, then parents need to understand that. And I'm not saying, oh, ban all medication, but we need to make informed decisions as parents yeah, and know these yeah. things. If they find that there was some undiagnosed bipolar or something like that, and maybe there were, and I'm not, the mother's adamant that there were no signs, there were no red flags, but maybe there's something that she's unaware of, that it's not her fault for not noticing. But she mentioned that the girl had been spending some more time in her room wanting alone time and she's a 12 year old girl she's going through 12 year old girl things this seems normal to me i would think the same exact thing yeah that wouldn't raise a red flag to me that you sounds know? like a teenager right yeah but again it gives us that insight to okay so if we see something and it, it seems normal or we think it's normal maybe we just are a little more annoying about 
making sure that's the case. I, I don't know. I and really the, the don't. The worst outcome is that years go by and we find out that there was absolutely nothing here that could have been seen to prevent this. That's what scares us the most because then we right. can't prevent it in our in in our lives. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that that's how it is. But maybe that is what it is because there's some things you just can't plan for. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. Bye.